The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So people on the left. Uh, case in point, uh, if you look at the most recent issue of the International Social Review, you will find a, an interview with Noam Chomsky, probably the left's leading intellectual, uh, in which Chomsky compares the atmosphere in the United States today to that of the Weimar Republic in the period before the rise of uh, Adolf Hitler uh, in Germany. He compared the base of the Tea Party movement to the base of the Nazi Party. He expressed a certain amount of despair in his interview. In another interview that he gave with Chris Hedges, uh, who's also speaking here this weekend, by the way, of uh, Truth Dig, uh, Chomsky commented, the mood in this country is frightening. The level of anger, frustration, and hatred of institutions is not organized in a constructive way. It is going into self-destructive fantasies. Now, like Chomsky, many on the left have seen in the Tea Partiers an incipient American fascism. Uh, nor is Chomsky's comparison unusual on the left. Hedges himself often writes of the threat of Christian fascism. Ariana Huffington says that uh, Democrats have been waiting for 30 years for a populist movement to counter the Reagan Revolution of the 1980s, and now it has one, and it's actually aimed against them uh, and liberals. Now, what exactly is motivating people to make these sorts of comparisons? Now, the most obvious is the polling evidence uh, over almost a year that shows that the Republicans are positioned to make uh, major gains in the 2010 midterm elections. More startling signs come from a number of events that indicate a shift to the right, at least among some sections of the population. Uh, the murder of Dr. George Tiller by an anti-abortion fanatic in Kansas. Demonstrations by the Tea Party uh, protesters, some of them carrying signs depicting President Obama in racist caricatures or uh, pictures of Obama as Adolf Hitler. Uh, the seeming popularity of Sarah Palin. Uh, even Scott Brown's election victory in Massachusetts and uh, Ted Kennedy's old seat. Now, what makes people move from observations uh, about the support for conservatism and conservatives out there to worries about the possibility of uh, fascism on the doorstep is the notion that, uh, that many accepted uh, that it wasn't supposed to be like this. Only a year or so after the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression punctured all of the neoliberal and free market myths and conservative myths about the free market and gave the Democratic administration the opportunity to change course, it seems that not much has really changed for most ordinary people. Uh, Mark Brenner, who's the editor of Labor Notes, uh, wrote it a, a few months back in, uh, in an editorial there. He said, with millions still unemployed and millions more losing their homes, politicians are talking about the biggest economic crisis of our lifetimes in the past tense. Bankers and CEOs crash the economy, but turn on the news and somehow auto workers and school teachers are the real problem. Now, instead of a movement calling for the bankers and the CEOs to pay for the crisis they caused, we seem to have a movement calling for a deepening of the policies that will only make those matters worse. It leads many people to conclude that there is something not only fundamentally wrong with American politics, but that there's something fundamentally wrong with the American population itself. After the right had so thoroughly discredited itself during the Bush years, how could it be that the, the Republican Party, the GOP, could be on the comeback trail and a sizable segment of the population appears to accept that unions or immigrants or public sector workers 
are to blame for the crisis. You know, fantasies that, you know, Acorn stole the last election and that actually caused the financial crisis because it was uh, 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 supporting you know, subprime mortgages or whatever. How could it be, or the idea that the president was not born in this country? Uh, how could it be that uh, people seem to be more worried about a government takeover of, of health care and death panels uh, than they are that the fact that millions of Americans have no, or soon will have no, access to health care, and so on and so on. Populism against elites and the banks is the way that the media and the political establishment has characterized the current national political mood. But incredibly, it seems that the political right, at least according to the media, have a corner on that mood, with the brief uptick of confidence among liberals that came with the passage of health care reform in March and April, the political shift since the election of Obama has generally been from hope to frustration, and among some segments of, of people on the left, hope to despair. Um, so how do we get our, our, our heads around this crazy situation? Now let's first stipulate that what I've described here is a one-sided picture uh, for effect. As much as anything. But anyway, it's true. It, it is true, but I think it accurately reflects the feelings of large numbers of liberals and radicals today. Most of the explanations was, uh, for this, from the kind of mainstream poli-sci explanations to the more popular ones, uh, such as the one that uh, Tom Frank put, a, put across in his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, tend to explain support for the right as being some bottom-up kind of affair, a shift in cultural attitudes in reaction to the 1960s, or a sort of false consciousness uh, that prioritizes social issues like abortion uh, over um, economic issues like job security. And while there's a grain of truth in, the, in these explanations, I think it's better to actually look at the overall uh, political climate that actually shaped those perceptions and actually made that sort of politics seem in reality to at least a certain segment of the population. Now, for the historical period that went roughly from 1930 to 1980, uh, the Democratic Party had been able to rely on a social compact uh, that had been worked out between the unions and their employers, the union movement that was built in the 1930s. Living standards and social spending rose steadily throughout the post-war economic boom, biggest boom in world capitalism history after the first 25 years after the Second World War. And uh, this continued to go on no matter what party uh, was in the White House. But when the post-war boom came to an end in the mid-1970s, uh, the corporate class uh, made a move collectively to pursue an aggressive employer's offensive aimed at breaking the power of major industrial unions through open union busting, rolling back the social gains of the 1960s gained from the, the women's, uh, the civil rights, the, the gay rights movement, and counterattacking the regulatory victories against business that figures like Ralph Nader uh, or the environmental movement had scored. And then, as it turned out, this was not a temporary shift in the balance of class forces. Uh, it was an actual turning point, marking the end of the New Deal era. That returning and return class in, over the course of the next couple of decades, it returned class inequality, uh, income inequality, back to its pre-depression uh, levels. Uh, the, the level of in income inequality in the United States today rivals that of uh, the 1920s. Now, in 1978, the president of the UAW, Douglas Fraser, called that corporate assault on labor a one-sided class war uh, that signaled the end of the social compact with labor. But the employer's offensive, of course, did not end with the Reagan administration, uh, however much the Democrats would like to tell us that. Uh, it continued through the 1990s and accelerated uh, under the Bush years and continues today. 
the first decade of the 21st century has been one in which corporations rescinded long-standing pension and health care benefits, one in union context decades earlier, while workers uh, have faced falling household incomes. From its inception in the 1970s, the effort to restrict or eliminate uh, welfare state protections has been an important part of that business mobilization against the, work, uh, the working class. Reducing that social wage, uh, the amount, the the idea that the government you know, owes you a certain amount of something uh, for health, for, for uh, education, and so forth. Reducing that social wage required an assault on liberalism, which was the main ideological prop of the post-war welfare state. And in a time when the reigning, the reigning Keynesian orthodoxy seemed to have no answers for the crisis in which unemployment and inflation were going up at the same time, in Keynesian theory, that's not supposed to happen. Right? Uh, the free market ideas that had been discredited in, during the, by the Great Depression in the 1920s began to gain a new hearing. Now, and I want to say, too, that this was a conscious and top-down uh, effort as well to, to rehabilitate these ideas. In 1971, a little-known lawyer for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce produced a memo that served as a blueprint for that mobilization that said that organized business had to consistent, consciously shape the debate in a pro-business direction in the universities, the media, textbooks, and so on. It had to emulate, I mean, he actually said, had to emulate the civil rights movement and use the courts to pursue its pro-business, anti-regulatory agenda. The lawyer who wrote that uh, was a man named Lewis Powell. Does anybody know who Lewis Powell is or was? He was an advisor to Nixon, right? Right. He was an advisor to Nixon who, after about two months after he wrote this memo, was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States <laughs> by Nixon and stayed there for till the 80s. I forget who, who, who replaced him. But anyway, so uh, and it was funny because uh, apparently the uh, Republicans managed to figure out that uh, if this memo ever actually got into his, uh, his confirmation <laughs> hearings that he would probably be finished. So they made sure to bury it. And it only sort of became a historical <laughs> thing, you know, later when it was found out. Now, anyway, business lavished millions on think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute to revive the free market, laissez-faire capitalist ideology that had been discredited uh, in the Great Depression. Big business revived the Republican Party, which had been still reeling from the Watergate, the Watergate scandal at that, uh, at that time, and converted it into the main vehicle for the corporate-backed uh, conservative offensive. The employer's offensive necessarily involved rolling back the gains won by the social movements of the 1960s and the early 70s. And that had two effects. On the one hand, attacking the gains of the 60s and 70s was also the way to attack any government programs that flowed from those gains, such as the war on poverty programs. On the other hand, the Republican Party rebuilt its mass component, its mass support, through an appeal to segments of the population that rejected the social changes of the 1960s. The 1964 Barry Goldwater campaign for president, although it ended, on the, ended up on the losing end of the biggest landslide in presidential election history, managed to road test that new approach uh, to conservatives uh, and to, to build a kind of conservative base. And, of course, over the next 34 years, that approach has been perfected. Goldwater actually ran on a platform of opposing the 1964 Civil Rights Act as an infringement to private property rights. If this sounds familiar, it is actually exactly the argument that Rand Paul uh, just made, uh, the senatorial nominee uh, for uh, Kentucky, uh, which has landed him in so much trouble. Now, while the population overwhelmingly rejected Goldwater, the conservatives found that they excited passions not when they talked about property rights, 
But when they talk about so-called cultural issues that appeal to large sections of the population, particularly white Southerners who were moving away from the Democratic Party as the Civil Rights Movement challenged the old order. Uh, later, uh, a leader of the New Right uh, of the 70s and 80s, a guy named Paul Weirich, uh, explained its strategy. He said, we talk about issues that people care about, like gun control, abortion, taxes, and crime. Yes, they're emotional issues, but that's better than talking about capital formation. <laughs> At this time, the conservatives managed to pull off something that had eluded them in the past, a fusion between the traditional conservatives worrying, worried about holding back social change and the business conservatives more interested in the bottom line. It wasn't simply that conservatives learned to appeal to two different groups. It was that they made big government, quote-unquote, the enemy. The business conservatives opposed big government for reasons of taxes and regulation, while the traditionalists could, attack them, could, could characterize themselves as opponents of big government, which was seen as siding with blacks, women, welfare recipients, and other people that, in their view, you know, were not deserving. Now, these social factors made it possible for uh, right-wing pro-business politicians and activists to pose as populist opponents of the liberal elite. How many times have we heard that? Rather than being seen as water carriers for big business, it, and it's actually a book Rachel has here, I'll re reference uh, Invisible Hands. Uh, it's an excellent book about this, this topic, that for years the conservatives had tried business, pro-business, sort of free market conservatives, had tried for years to try to get a hearing uh, and get more sort of popular support for their policies, but they could never get it because it would always be tied back to say, you know, these people are just shills for big business. Well, in about the 60s, they, they figured out a way to sort of make it appear as if they really weren't shills for big business, even though they were. And it was this way that they were actually able to also make liberalism seem as not something that had to do with, you know, whatever, working people getting Social Security and Medicare and things like that, but about cultural issues and elitism, you know, the bi-coastal elite, all that kind of stuff, that, um, that, uh, that actually they were at, managed to get um, around, away from this. And the right-wing leaders at this time and currently were quite uh, conscious of this. Uh, Patrick Buchanan, you've heard of him, wrote in 1977 that if there's any future for us, it is all forfeited as long as we let ourselves be perceived as obedient foot soldiers of the Fortune 500. So we think of the Christian right as a vehicle by which conservatives could oppose women right, women's rights and gay rights. But one of the foundational events for the formation of the Christian right, another thing that Phillips Fine points out in his book, in the 1970s, led by one-time segregationist ministers such as Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, was a fight with the IRS uh, to preserve tax-exempt status for Christian schools the majority of which had been formed as white academies in the, in the wake of the school desegregation decisions of the 50s and 60s. So when you hear the Tea Partiers today say that their campaign is really about freedom, not about race, it's hard to take them seriously. The point isn't that every Tea Partier is a racist or that they're mobilizing around racial issues or anything like that. It's that you cannot separate the development of modern American conservatism from the backlash against the civil rights movement. They go hand in hand. Over the 30 plus years, the elements of official conservatism, from the, the Christian right, uh, you know, Christian coalition, to the, to the Republican Party, have developed an anti-liberal politics that managed to gain a foothold with at least a pretty consistent one-third of the American population. Maybe it's a little higher, maybe it's a little lower, whatever, but about one-third, I'd say. Government policies like abstinence education, uh, Pentagon spending, nurture those particular constituencies. 
the right-wing noise machine, from talk radio to Fox News, whose emergence flows from the Reagan administration's uh, decision to end the fairness doctrine, which was uh, a requirement that you, know, you used to have, quote, both sides of an issue on, on uh, the media. Um, it serves that it serves that that constituency with a daily dose of right-wing propaganda. So again, if there's a segment of the population that really believes that Acorn stole the last election, it's because they get this stuff fed to them every day by uh, Gwen Beck and the like. The, the success of neoliberalism is un, in, in undermining the pillars of the liberal state also plays into this. The weakening of trade unions also means the weakening of even the most minimal presence of a voice of, of labor, of official labor, of workers in the political arena uh, today. The shifting of pensions over to 401k programs means that the politics of resentment can take root among those who have been devastated in the financial crash. People who have lost thousands in their 401ks can be susceptible to arguments, which the right is more than happy to furnish them with, uh, about greedy public sector workers who still have pensions. You know, How come you know, I've lost all my money on my 401k, but look at those greedy public sector workers instead of actually but should have been, why doesn't everybody have a pension you know, that, that's guaranteed? A generation ago, before the dismantling of the pension system, it wouldn't have been as easy to sow uh, those, uh, those divisions. Now, all of those factors together help to form the core of what, you might, of what is referred to today as red state America and what popular appeal conservative politics may have today. They took four decades to build, so they aren't going to be undone following just one election. Now, for months, the mainstream media allowed the uh, Tea Partiers to get away with a popular charade as being ordinary folks rising up against a government takeover of the U.S. health care system. But one consequence of the Democrats' passage of the health care uh, reform has been a media reassessment of the Tea Partiers. Uh, you know, the media loves the winner more than anything, right? As the Tea Partiers started looking like the losers in the health care debate uh, on reform, the media cast a more skeptical eye in their direction. Now, major news and research organizations like the New York Times and the Pew Center for People in the Press have produced detailed profiles of the Tea, of the tea Partiers. Uh, they, they show consistently that the self-described Tea Partiers are older, wealthier, whiter, more conservative, and more Republican than the population as a whole. They are probably the only group in the U.S. who still think George W. Bush was a great president. <laughs> and they are not a third force in American politics, and their numbers are much exaggerated. Let's even give them the estimate of 70 to 70,000, maybe 100,000 that uh, turned out for the September 12th protest of 2009. That's the high point of this mobilization. Compare that to 200,000 who marched in Washington about a month later for LGBT rights, uh, or uh, the 100,000 who marched just in Phoenix. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, or uh, to protest the anti-immigrant bill, not to mention the hundreds of thousands who protested on May Day. I mean, that's just a small, a small example, but uh, you know, it's 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 been a, a clear sort of message from the media that uh, uh, the Tea Party events are are covered and blown up in importance, and most of these other things aren't even recognized <laughs> that they even happen in the media. Now, the majority of active Tea Party members are conservatives who mostly vote Republican who have been mobilized by, by a group of longtime Washington lobbyists, Fox News, conservative activists, uh, people like uh, uh, former uh, speaker, former House Majority Leader Dick Armey and his uh, outfit uh, Freedom Works. Uh, the Tea Party movement has been largely a way for the existing Republican base to re reorganize itself, kind of get it riled up with some help from pro-corporate Washington lobbyists. 
it's unlikely that they've reached too far beyond the ranks of already committed conservatives. Now, I'm not saying that every single person who's ever gone to a Tea Party rally is just a member of the Republican base, but I'm saying that overall, that's pretty much who these people are. The true believers may think that they're trying to spark a revolution, as Sarah Palin exhorted them to a few months ago. Uh, but the people behind the movement are really trying to pour the old wine of conservatism, uh, of the discredited conservatism, into new bottles. And it should be clear that they represent the generation of the new right of the 70s and 80s that is now middle-aged and turning into senior citizens, for the most part. They, like the Christian right, represent a vocal minority in the country, and not a very popular one at that. In fact, it's been shattering news of the Tea Partiers recently that the ABC... Uh, news Washington Post poll that came out just about a week or two ago that found a majority of people in the country disapproving of the Tea Party movement, probably because of their antics in the healthcare debate uh, or maybe a number of other reasons. But an earlier poll by the same organization found that 71% of America of Americans view the Tea Party's favorite candidate, Sarah Palin, as unqualified to be president. That includes a majority of Republicans who think Sarah Palin is unqualified. As the Tea Party candidates have advanced through the GOP primaries, they've had a mixed record. In some states, they've knocked off the GOP establishment candidates. In other states, they've been defeated. In some places, they've been absorbed by the establishment. In fact, there's quite a, an effort on to do that right now. And when the general election voters are exposed to their real views, from Rand Paul criticizing the Civil Rights Act, to uh, Nevada's Sharon Angle calling for abolishing Social Security, to Idaho uh, representative calling for the repeal of direct election of senators on the grounds of states' rights, um, that uh, they're not as likely to win as much support as they think they will. Um, the uh, Actually, it was funny, uh, the meeting last night about populism, Elizabeth Schulte mentioned that one of the main demands of the populist movement in the 1890s was for the direct election of senators. You know, the senators would be appointed by, uh, uh, by uh, state legislatures. Uh, anyway, uh, in some cases, they may even cost the GOP winnable seats, uh, as they did in the special election earlier this year uh, in the New York 23rd Congressional District. Um, and now we have the phenomenon of different Tea Party groups, the Tea Party Nation, the Tea Party Express, and most of these people are basically scam artists running operations, uh, uh, sniping at each other over who's the genuine article and who's the imposter. It reminds me of that Monty Python skit about the, <laughs> the people's fun of Judea. But anyway, the, the life of Brian, if you haven't seen it. Anyway. But most likely, the so-called movement will last until about November uh, and disappear into the GOP after that. At least that would be my expectation. Um, we'll see if that's true. But So the U.S. may not be the Tea Party nation of the conservatives' dreams, but that doesn't mean that the right can't make a comeback. Uh, and to understand why, we need to uh, get a handle on what the current political mood is and what the left has to do uh, to respond to it and to shape it. Now, we're currently in, in the midst of an economic recovery that started about a year ago, and I don't have to tell anyone uh, that here that few people feel that we are in an economic recovery much less likely to expect that there's a, a major improvement in their jobs or pay, home prices, or any other number of indices that the, uh, that of the, the worst recession since the 1930s. The gap between the richest and the poorest remains the highest since the 1920s, and the level of long-term unemployment is the longest on record. Millions have experienced economic devastation. And this climate of economic polarization, political polarization, the growth of the far right and the potential growth of a radical left or a more mobilized left can manifest itself. Also, political issues can become sharply polarized as politicians and activists seek more radical solutions to the status quo. 
Uh, think, for example, of the uh, polarization around immigration fo- uh, focused by the Arizona law, SB uh, 1070. And now, for the Arizona legislature, that's not good enough. They actually want to pass a law restricting or repealing citizenship rights of uh, people born in the United States um, to uh, non-citizen parents. Now, even though the recession has actually decreased the flow of immigrants and Latinos to the country, and immigrants have a higher unemployment rate than whites, right-wingers in Arizona and around the country have picked up on the anti-immigrant card, knowing that they will have a ready audience of millions uh, looking for someone to blame for the economic conditions that they face. But, of course, the polarization doesn't always go in one way. So we see the attack in Arizona. We see May Day demonstrations uh, and new momentum around immigrant rights that mobilized in response to uh, SB 1070. Now, in that kind of a climate, the Obama administration and the Democrats have done themselves no favors. The economic uh, crisis gave the incoming administration the leeway to challenge the the neoliberal consensus, whose politics of tax cuts for the rich, deregulation, flexible labor standards, uh, were largely responsible for the economic uh, meltdown and the declining living standards of the previous generation. Uh, Instead, the Obama economic team, uh, drawn largely from the pro-Wall Street Clintonites, appropriated the crisis to spend enormous amounts of taxpayer money without really changing their neoliberal policy assumptions. In conjunction with the various uh, emergency powers that the Federal Reserve has created, the government has put more than $14 trillion, and some estimates go as high as $23 trillion, at the disposal of the financial system. This uh, massive transfer of wealth from the working class to the financial sector goes far beyond the current federal deficit. Nevertheless, the Obama administration has tried to uh, burnish its deficit-fighting credentials by calling for a freeze on domestic spending on programs like education and job training. Its bipartisan commission uh, on deficit reduction is aimed at providing cover for the long-time conservative goal of entitlement reform, meaning reducing or eliminating Social Security and Medicare. It used the leverage it gained when it took over General Motors not to remake the company to produce uh, energy-efficient cars, but to downsize GM's workforce and to cut wages and benefits. It accomplished this, of course, with the help of the UAW leadership. And yet all of this spending, unemployment has has barely budged. It seems that big government was tried, and it didn't work. Uh, This provides the wedge by which the ruling class and the right can gain a hearing for deficit reduction, austerity, and cutbacks. If this plays right into the hands of the conservatives. A centrist, quote-unquote, pro-business administration that, while failing to meet the expectations of millions, has succeeded in neutering most of its opposition from the left, has created a political vacuum that formerly discredited right has managed to rush into fill, or tried to rush to fill. In Congress, the Republicans have banked on the two-party system's inbuilt tendency to make every election a negative referendum on the party in power, in essence, to give the electorate a chance to throw the bums out, rather than to make a positive endorsement of the party out of power. The GOP has assumed, so far correctly, that they can obstruct government action, uh, and that this will uh, contribute to a sense among the population that Washington and by extension, the Democrats who run Washington, is ineffectual and unconcerned with solving ordinary people's problems. The resulting discontent and cynicism replacing November 2008's hope and expectation can only redound to the GOP's benefit. If Democratic incompetence and failure takes hold of the political environment, the Republicans will win big in November, and this will be less of a vote in support of the Republicans' free market platform uh, or opposition to Obama's you know, socialist policies, as they say, <laughs> as it will be an expression of frustration with the debt that the Democrats couldn't deliver. 
If anger and resentment were merely mobilized to bring the GOP back to parity with the Democrats in the next election, that wouldn't really merit much more commentary. But in a time of sharp political polarization stemming from the worst recession since the, at least the Second World War, resentment can give way to many more sinister developments. The nonsense associated with birthers and deathers and all that, uh, and uh, mainstream politicians who either tolerate or promote it, contributes to a toxic atmosphere of rage in America, according to a recent Anti-Defamation League uh, report on the American right. It not only poisons the political atmosphere, but as the ADL points out, it uh, provides a medium for which the far right can grow. Uh, now, just for the sake of time, I won't go into like, a lot of details about far right, but just to say that uh, there has been observation that the uh, militia movement, which had more or less been condemned to death after the end, uh, after one of its members, Timothy McVeigh, uh, blew up the uh, uh, federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 in 1995. The, the Tea Party, or sorry, the, um, the militia movement went into decline after that. Well, it seems to have had a rebirth uh, recently. And also, uh, there's other, you know, there's other aspects of uh, the far right that are also operating around the fringes of the Tea Party movement. The Oath Keepers are one. These are people who are law enforcement and, and military people who have taken oaths to uh, not uh, to only defend their particular inter interpretation of the Constitution uh, and so forth. So, um, again, because I'm shorter on time, I'm not going to go into the details, but you know, people should ask questions about that if they would like. Now, uh, it also, I think, and I would, I, uh, this is all very squishy, so it's not hard, it's not easy to necessarily quantify this. I, I have the perception, and I could be wrong about this, but to the extent that the ADL makes these counts and these other organizations like the Center for Democratic Renewal sort of keep track of hate groups, it doesn't seem to me that, that they've still yet reached the level that they did in the mid-90s, which is pretty amazing given the, uh, the, the level of economic devastation that, uh, compared to that time. But that's just an impression. Uh, but, but it's clear that what an unhinged, an unhinged right can do when you see something like George Tiller being gunned down in his church in, uh, in Kansas. Um, but it would be wrong, I think, to point out these aspects or these examples of far-right activity and conclude that you know, after this brief moment uh, on election night 2008, uh, that the U.S. has shifted inexorably to the right. That there's, there, but it is, the case, it is the case that the far-right represents only a subculture of Americans. And we have to be on the lookout and, and be always willing to, to pose, oppose them and stand out against them. Uh, but I think that... Um, that we have to be looking elsewhere for a really a discussion of what the sort of real uh, threat is out there today. So can the conservatives put the Republicans back in the congressional majority in a currently volatile climate? Yes, it's possible. Um, and we shouldn't, you know, that's looking reality in the face, you know. It may very well happen in uh, three months or whatever, four months. Um, opinion polls are, re are, are uh, registering levels of anti-incumbent sentiment that are, will only seen the last two times that congressional majorities got tossed out and replaced. Uh, but there's a difference between the GOP electing more representatives and ordinary Americans accepting the rights ideology and program as their own. In fact, when you scratch below the surface, you find that the consciousness on a whole range of issues is very mixed. For example, if you look at the horse race, quote-unquote horse race, uh, support opposed polls on, on health care reform, you find that uh, the, the opinion split or at least slightly negative in relationship to health care reform. But then when you dig a little bit below that, you find out that there's actually strong majorities in favor of 
providing a public health insurance option, taxing the rich to pay for it, requiring insurance companies to pay for everyone. In fact, some estimates show that about one in five of the people who say they oppose the health care plan are actually opposed it because they want a single-payer plan. They want something better than what the Obama administration delivered. So, um, so, so that's just an, an important uh, thing to, 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 to recognize. You can look at the same thing on, on immigration. It's disturbing that three out of five people, supposedly, are in support of Arizona SB 1070. But the same, the same time, when you ask people what do they think is the solution, the majority of them, by about that same amount, are in favor of a path to citizenship for immigrants who are here and working. That is not what the far right is in favor of. The far right is in favor of deporting the, uh, the immigrants. So um, that is actually uh, so that the so just and I could go through other examples even on, on the BP oil spill. You know, majority of supposedly continue being in favor of, of offshore oil drilling. On the other hand, 60% uh, say that BP should pay for everything and then it puts them out of business. So you know, you have this sort of thing. If consciousness of ordinary Americans is much more mixed and actually on many issues far more left wing than are ever admitted in the salons of the powerful and the media chatterers. Now, as November approaches, we are going to hear a lot of, or we could very likely hear a lot of stuff from the media, a lot of commentary on the left, places like the nation that will be hysterical about the oncoming uh, of the right. We'll hear all the old crap about the United States being a center-right nation, about how Americans can't overcome racism to support a black president, how the Democrats went too far and overreached, and the like. And while this will cause disorientation among the broad left and force a lot of it into back into the, the Democrats and Obama's camps, we can't lose sight of the bigger picture. Obama's election was a sign of um, the, the possibility of an ideological thaw in the politics that have dominated the country for the last generation. Now it's pretty clear that Obama and the Democrats um, themselves are not really interested in doing much than to, to actually tweak a few tweaks around the edges of the neoliberal consensus. But for millions of Americans, the last three years have altered their worldview. They remain open to a critique of capitalism and even to socialism, as uh, several recent polls, including the Gallup, just about a, a month ago, showed. Young workers facing declining living standard economic uh, prospects hold quite progressive views. This is also that the younger, 35 and under, is also the most multiracial uh, uh, generation in this country. Soon, uh, the, um, the uh, older, whiter Tea Partiers are, will, will move on, and the United States will become a majority non-white nation. Uh, so what's, need, but what's needed to transform these attitudes into action that actually shifts the political uh, climate is mobilization and organization that can give voice to those more progressive impulses. Now, since I've spent a lot of time talking about the Tea Partiers and the far right, we have to realize that the real threat to working people over the next period aren't the kooks who think that the president is some sort of foreign agent. The real threat comes from the mainstream politicians in both parties and representatives of big business who want to use the threat of government deficits to hack away at Social Security and Medicare and whatever else is left of what the, you know, such as it is, the U.S. social welfare state. They're the people who want to further privatize education to attack unions and to reinforce their already intolerable inequality in this country. They're the mainstream politicians, like those in the Arizona legislature, who are willing to legitimize positions that have recently only been heard from on the far right. 
For those forces, the Tea Partiers are merely what Stalin called the liberal defenders of the Soviet Union in the 1930s, the useful idiots that make budget cutting and union busting sound like moderate alternatives to the more extreme measures that the Tea Partiers put across. And it's the bipartisan status quo that needs to be challenged. Within the broader layers of the population that the economic <coughs> crisis has radicalized to the left is a minority that actively wants to build an alternative to the status quo. Among its ranks are likely to be found the leaders of future movements. Significantly, because this minority is radicalizing at a time when official liberalism in the Democratic Party is in power, some of its members will see the concrete necessity of building an alternative to the left of the Democrats, or at least to, to challenge the boundaries of the accepted uh, progressive politics. Splits to the left in the labor movement, such as the National Union of Healthcare Workers, whose uh, president will, will be speaking here later uh, this uh, later tomorrow, I think. Um, and uh, last week's victory in Chicago of the reformers and the teachers union, uh, and, uh, and challenges to the old liberal establishment groups, such as the formation of the Equality Across America, to challenge the sort of establishment LGBT groups, are examples of this. But these changes are, are at the molecular level. They're important. Uh, that uh, even while the national political debate um, focuses on the right. And until that radicalizing minority you know, continues to organize and expresses itself in struggle and creates that political space on the left, the brain-dead two-party debate between center-right Democrats and further-right Republicans will dominate national politics. While socialists cannot, yeah, okay. While socialists cannot force the pace of events, uh, we can be part of creating the alternatives um, to that uh, on the left that are so needed. Socialists uh, are involved at the ground level and city after city in the kinds of struggles that are building the building blocks of larger movements that can shape uh, national politics. Now, I want to close where I started, with this, which is with that Chomsky interview that I quoted at the beginning. It's in the ISR this uh, month. Although I use this example of someone on the left who's taken with the notion of the U.S. in a pre-Weimar you know, Weimar Germany-like state, I think that a lot of what the rest of he says, a lot of other stuff he says in that, in that article, and particularly the stuff of the 1930s and the role of the Communist Party in organizing people to counter the despair of the Great Depression with a positive movement is actually very important. The lack of an organization and continuity is one of the U.S. left's biggest weak spots. And in the political climate like today, it really inhibits our, develop, our ability to develop a positive response. So Chauncey's absolutely right about the need to build a living, breathing political alternative to the two-party status quo. For that, we have to conceive of politics as being something that goes far beyond what happens in the ballot box you know, every two years or every four years. What's needed more than anything is activism and education that blows open the, na the narrow political confines where, every where anything progressive is associated with Obama and the Democrats, and the right wing uh, monopolizes the opposition to the status quo. And so I say, if the Tea Partiers are so concerned that a center-right politician like Obama is heading the, leading the U.S. to socialism, isn't about time we actually gave him something really genuine more <laughs> in that area. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.